Well, today we begin the long journey, uh, the road to, to Morador. It's a long journey. I've never preached through a book that has this many chapters, so I have no idea how long this will take. Um, and as always, all these sermons are online, and I, I know many people listen online. If you're listening right now, we're so glad to, uh, to, to have you uh, kind of a, a part of us, though you may be far away. But we begin our, our study of the book of Acts. It is the, the first volume of church history. And if you like history, like me, well, then you're going to love Acts. The unanimous testimony of the early church is that Luke is the author um, of this book. Luke um, who's also the author of the gospel that bears his name, the traveling companion and close friend of Paul, wrote the book of Acts. The church fathers also testify to this. Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, uh, Origen, Eusebius, Jerome, also attribute Acts to Luke. And when we consider that the gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament and then combine it with Acts... It makes Luke the author of more than one-fourth of the entire New Testament. That's more than any other writer. And no doubt, when we think of unique characteristics of Luke, we think, of course, he is a doctor, he is a physician, but I think there's something more unique than even the fact that he's a doctor and physician, and it is that he is the only non-Jewish author of Scripture that we have. Um, By all indications... Most commentators believe that Luke is not Jewish, based upon Colossians chapter 4, 10 to 14, as well as in Acts chapter 1, 19, when he uses the phrase, their language, to distinguish him from the Jewish people. So, most likely, the only Jewish author of, uh, non-Jewish author of Scripture And when it comes to actually when did he write this book, kind of two schools of thought. He he may have written this book while Paul was still living, near the end of his first imprisonment in Acts 28, though it's also possible he could have written this toward his own death farther back around 85 AD. But the book is going to follow the ministry of Peter and then Paul. And it is going to talk a lot about the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. It's mentioned more than 50 times in this book. And so we begin Acts chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The very first words of Acts chapter 1, 1 are meant to recall, meant to have us think about something, and that is, the opening verses to Luke's gospel. He's doing it very intentionally as he once again addresses this to Theophilus and he wants us to draw our attention there. And so if he wants to draw our attention there, who am I to stand in his way? So we look at Luke chapter 1 just for a moment. It says in verse 1 of Luke 1, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those..." who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke is doing something 
that no one else has done yet. Luke is doing something very novel. That is, he's writing a sequel. He's writing a sequel to his gospel, making it very clear that the story of Jesus, it's not over yet. And he writes this to Theophilus. There is a little debate whether Theophilus was an actual person, who I I think it probably was, or maybe if it was a group of people. That's based upon the fact that Theophilus' name means friend of God or loved by God. An ordinary Greek name, well attested from the 3rd century B.C. onward. The title, Most Excellent, while it doesn't appear here in Acts chapter 1, 1, and it does appear in Luke's gospel, may indicate the significance of the identity of Theophilus. This person may have been of some high rank because that term was used for provincial governors in the book of Acts, in Acts 23, 26, 24, 2, 26, 25. And so he's writing this book to Theophilus. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do, And teach everything that Jesus was doing and teaching. Doing, teaching. And this is important. And, and this is important because as Christians, we have to be faithful to teach the same message that Jesus did. As Christians, we need to be faithful not just to teach the same message that Jesus taught, but to do it to live by it as well. We don't just want to be hearers of the word, right? That's what James says, right? Don't just be hearers of the word, also be doers. It's great to hear the word. It's even better when you do the word. And so we can see here, Luke is trying to be very faithful in the retelling of this story, but this assignment doesn't stop with Luke. In fact, I'd argue that we have an obligation. We have an obligation to faithfully retell the story of Christ, right? The, The teaching part. I want to tell people the story of Jesus, about his life and his death and his resurrection and the hope that we have in Jesus. The world needs hope. They can only find it in Jesus. We want to do this. And we also want to make sure that we're acting like Christians. And what I find is that there are uh, two major factors that cause us as Christians to, I think, stumble over this point, stumble over the doing and the teaching. And I think First of all, many of us are just ignorant to biblical truth. Second, those of us who know biblical truth, we don't exactly live by it. We call ourselves Christians, but that's about it. And I was working on the sermon this week, and I asked Diana, I said, Diana, could you memorize one Bible verse a week? Yeah, I think I could do that. Uh, Put the pedal to the metal, but yeah, I think if I was really determined, I could do one Bible verse a week. I said, okay. Could you do one Bible verse a month? And she said, well, I think we've established the fact if I can do one Bible verse a week, I could do one Bible verse a month. I said, could you memorize one Bible verse a year? She's like, I I hope you have, you're ending this story somewhere, right? Clearly, I can do one Bible verse a year. And I thought, then why don't we? Like, you're 20, 30, 40 years old, like whatever, right? And you've got 20 Bible verses? 
Think about that, right? Okay. If you're 20 years old, you're like, all right, could I literally knock out right now 20 verses, verse and reference, boom, 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 boom. And I think the sad reality for many Christians is no. No, I, I, I probably couldn't knock out 20 or 30 or 40, right? It's sad. That's sad because we already just established in this argument that you could easily do one a month. And for many of us, we don't even do one here. And the writer of Hebrews rebukes some of his readers' ignorance of the truth. In, in Hebrews chapter 5, 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to, to teach you again, like, the, the basic principles of the oracles of God. Like, you need milk, not solid food. Like, you guys are a joke, he, he's saying in Hebrews 5. You're a joke. You guys should be way further along in your faith journey, and you're not. You should be teaching people, right? And you're not. And... My goal isn't, like, to make you feel bad. Like, my goal is to emphasize what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. That's my goal. Because that seems to be the significance of verse 1. Oh, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Yeah. It should be a wake-up call for some of us. It really should be. You know, some people will come, and they'll be like, man, I like LCC. I'm like, oh, where do you like it? Oh, man, you preach the best sermons. I'm like, that's really encouraging. But I feel bad because some people, many people, totally rely upon that one time they gather corporately a week to get, like, that food. That's a problem, right? So we need to be opening our Bibles. We need to be reading our Bibles. We need to be memorizing our Bibles. And we need to be doing what the Bible says. We can come up with reasons why, why we can't, but they're just excuses. I can say they're not excuses, then you feel better, but like my goal is not that we feel better. My goal is that we're doing what Jesus is doing. We're teaching what Jesus is teaching. That's, that's the emphasis here in Acts 1. 1. Well, he says in verse 2, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So that phrase in verse 2, until the day when he was taken up, that's a reference to his ascension. Luke's going to use this term four times in this chapter. It's a reference to his ascension. That day that marks the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's finally arrived. Now during his earthly ministry, well, he gave commands to his apostles through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who was both the source and the power of his ministry. And I said in my introductory remarks that the Holy Spirit's going to be talked a lot about in the book of Acts. Here's introduced in chapter 1, verse 2. No doubt to emphasize that this same Jesus who taught during his earthly life, well, he's going to continue to instruct his disciples even after he leaves through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Or to put it another way, and I really love this quote from the author of the New American Commentary. He says, You see, formerly they had experienced the Spirit through the presence of Jesus, 
but soon they would experience Jesus through the presence of the Spirit. Jesus' earthly ministry is ending, right? And they've, they've had Jesus with them. That's great, right? He's leaving now. Whoa! Right? I mean, imagine if Jesus has been with you, and you're like, whoa, don't go. I don't want you to go. I love Jesus. He's leaving. Hey, guys, it's okay, right? You've been experiencing the Holy Spirit through me. Now we're just going to invert it, right? You're going to continue to experience me, but through the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's good news. That's good news for his followers. He presented, verse 3, himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You see, the reason I say it's good news at the end of verse 2 is because the apostles, they needed not only the proper message, which verse 1 talks about, right? All that Jesus began to do and teach. They needed the proper message, but they also needed confidence, guys. Confidence to proclaim a message, even if people thought they were weird, even if people blocked them on social media, even if people ostracized them, they needed that confidence. Confidence to go and proclaim a message, even if it, I don't know, cost them their lives. The apostles, no doubt, had difficulty believing in that kingdom after the death of its king. And so, that's why he says in verse 3, he presented himself alive to them, right? When, when you die and then you present yourself alive to people, that instills a certain degree of confidence. It just does. And also by many proofs. Proofs that Luke had already vividly given examples of in his gospel. On the road to Emmaus in 24.13, to Peter in 24.34, to the disciples in 24.36. And, and the end result of these proofs of the appearances of Christ, the resurrected Christ, was that the apostles became absolutely convinced of the reality of Jesus' physical resurrection. And that assurance gave them the boldness because it can be scary sometimes to open our mouths and say hi to people, open our mouths and talk to people, open our mouths and witness to people, open our mouths and maybe invite someone to come with us next Sunday to this very service or to a small group later on during the week, right? It can be scary, right? And so they're given assurance through these proofs to give them the boldness to do, to preach the gospel to the very people who crucified Christ. I mean, these people have killed Christ. Yeah, that's okay. But they might kill you. Well, yeah, but so what, right? Like, Jesus was resurrected, and if he can be resurrected, then he can no doubt resurrect us. And so we see this just amazing transformation of the apostles from these, like, fearful, cowering skeptics to these bold, powerful witnesses. Just amazing transformation. And you notice in verse 3, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And that is a phrase that is used many times, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, in the Gospels. I'm sure if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably maybe heard this. And what I realize is that we sometimes have a hard time, like we know it, but we have a hard time like 
defining it. We're like, all right, well, what exactly? When he says kingdom of God, can you clarify that? I'd love to clarify that. Well, this is what he says. When, when he's talking about kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is the realm where God rules in the sphere of salvation. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. The kingdom of God, that is the realm where God rules the sphere of salvation, and it has essentially two basic components. The physical, or creation, and the spiritual. Kingdom of God, realm where God rules, the sphere of salvation, two basic components. You've got the physical, that's creation, and then you have the spiritual. And this is why I often say, when explaining the kingdom of God, that we are living in the kingdom of God. Right now. We're living in the kingdom of God. We are living in the already, but the not yet. I think that one of my professors used that phrase, or someone else. I, I'm not making it up. We're living in the already, but the not yet. The kingdom has arrived. Um, that's the message that we see all throughout the Gospels. The kingdom has arrived. But the final phase of the kingdom will ultimately come upon Christ's return. When Jesus comes back and he destroys uh, the rebels, the, the spiritual kingdom thus will be merged with creation. They will become the same. And that's, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 24. It says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So he's been teaching them about the kingdom. One of the things that he's done a lot about. They live in the kingdom of God, yet they're going to experience the, the fullness of this reality when Jesus comes again, right? And that's true for us today. We live in the already, but the not yet. And now his, his earthly ministry is coming to an end. And you say, whoa, is that, a, is that a problem? No, it's not a problem that his earthly ministry is, is coming to an end. Because Jesus said to, to Thomas in John's gospel, he says, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's a verse that I remember my mom telling me when I was a child. Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's not a problem. No, not a problem that his earthly ministry is ending because of what's about to come in the next verse. And, after, and while staying, verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So... He's ordering them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. I'm going to go on a limb and say the apostles, they may have been tempted to assume that they were ready to go on their own strength. And that's a temptation I think sometimes we can fall into, right? Um, be any practical application, but doing things on our own strength. And doing things on your own strength, the problem of that is that doesn't glorify God, that glorifies you. It's like, wow, look at him! But the second you say that, you just took the spotlight off of God and put it on yourself. That's a problem. The problem they, no doubt, run into here. 
And no doubt they would have been tempted to go out and minister on their own strength, right? They're pumped, right? I mean, this is like spiritual emphasis week times like 100, Jesus resurrected. I mean, they're like on fire, ready to go. Let us go, Jesus. We don't care. We just want to tell people about you. And to prevent that error, Jesus says, well, hold on, I want you guys to wait. Wait, why do we want to wait? We're ready to go right now. To the apostles who were no doubt fired up with enthusiasm and eager to begin the mission of the Great Commission, it certainly must have seemed strange to them, and yet it illustrates the point. All the preparation, and I'm really big on preparation. If anybody, you guys talk to me, I'm huge on preparation. Um, huge. Prepar- just, I think it's really important. Um, but all the preparation... And all the training and all the knowledge and those things are good are ultimately useless without the proper might. Without the power to accompany the truth. And God's pledge was to be fulfilled just ten days later. And so he says, I want you to wait, guys. Wait. And I know you're you're ready to go. Just pump the brakes for a second. For you have heard me say, you have heard from me, verse 5, and this is why they're supposed to wait. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What Jesus points out here appears to be two different baptisms. Now, he's quoting John the Baptist here from Luke chapter 3.16. In Luke 3.16, John says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. He's referring to Jesus. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, when we talk about John the Baptist in the Bible, well, he did baptisms, different type of baptism. John's was a baptism of repentance, and the church continues, we continue to practice that today. Uh, This outward uh, form of the water baptism, right? When we do water baptisms, it's the image of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, right? We, just as Jesus was buried in the grave and then came out of the grave, that's the picture, right? We go into the water, we come out of the water. It's a, it's a visible sign, an outward sign of an inward change that has taken and been brought about by the Holy Spirit. But it seems to be that Jesus is mentioning, okay, okay, you guys know about that. Remember that story? Okay. Well, then you remember also that story that John says, even though I'm doing these baptisms right now, another is going to come and baptize you. And this is where things start to get kind of confusing. <laughs> like, really confusing. Because when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this phrase means a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people. For a lot of people, it makes them feel really uncomfortable. It does, right? friend says, dude, I went to this... I went to this church in uh, downtown Lynchburg. I said, oh, okay. He's like, it was weird. People were drunk. I'm like, I'm sorry. They were drunk on the Holy Spirit, right? They're just rolling around, laughing hysterically. It's just, it's just crazy, right? 
And I'm sitting there waiting, oh, well, when are we actually going to open the Bible? And never really got around to it, but man, it was all about like that moment, that experience. It was like, oh, this the Holy Spirit's moving. And usually in certain denominations, this book tends to be like, oh, well, we've got the Holy Spirit moving, so we can just set this aside and let the Spirit work, and, and this is just off to the side. And it's weird, and we're uncomfortable. We're like, all right, what, what are I supposed to do with that? Because we come to Acts 1-5, it's like, all right, well, then what does this mean then? Is, is this mean, like, all that weird stuff that sometimes that we hear about? And I want to answer this question for us. What does the baptism of the Holy Spirit mean? And how does it relate to, one, our initial salvation experience... And two, how does it relate to whether or not we are to expect or to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit or subsequent baptisms of the Spirit later in the Christian life? That's what I want to try to answer for us. So buckle up. And what I'm going to suggest is that the way that the Apostle Paul uses the phrase in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and the way that Luke uses the phrase right here, and by Luke, really it's Jesus as reported by Luke, they're not the same. That's going to be my basic premise, which I think would help us to avoid a lot of confusion if, if we can agree on this point. And, and so this means... That when we ask, well, what does that phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit, actually mean? Or baptism by the Spirit, what does that mean? We have to ask, well, are, are you talking about how Paul used that phrase? Or are you talking about how Luke used the phrase when he quoted Jesus? Because they're not contradictory. And I'm not arguing that there's any conflict. In fact, I'm saying that they're using the same words, but they're just going to use them in different ways. And so... Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Do you see that there? For in one spirit, right? There's one Holy Spirit that we were all baptized into, one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. And virtually everyone agrees that what Paul is referring to here, his understanding of baptism by the Spirit, is an act by which the Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ and his body, the church. In other words, that's becoming a Christian. His usage in 1 Corinthians 12, 15. That is, that's conversion. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be moved upon by the Holy Spirit in such a way that we are brought to faith and united to Jesus. And so growing up, because of all the weird, flat-out, charismatic chaos, and I say that, as a charismatic. I always tell people, I'm a charismatic, but with a seatbelt on, right? Kramer, Kramer anticipated that. He's heard the joke. I am. I am a charismatic, but with a seatbelt on. I'm open but cautious. I'm like, right, what does the Bible say, right? Should be, what, is this biblical? Nope, that's not biblical. Okay, we need, to, we need to flat out call it for what it is. Is this biblical? Is someone speaking in tongues? Is there an interpreter? Okay, all right. At least, at least we're following the, the manual that God's given for us. But I think because of all the, 
the weird charismatic chaos that we know or that we hear or that we experience, we just go along and say, it's conversion. We're talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's conversion. Because that seems to be the way Paul's using it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And then any reference that we come across, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, in the book of Acts, as it's mentioned a lot, we're like, oh, conversion, conversion, conversion. That just helps us to argue it away. We're like, all right, that's how we deal with it. Because we don't like the weird, crazy stuff. It's just uncomfortable, and so we're just boom, 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 boom. It's just conversion. The problem, the problem in doing this is I don't think that's the way Jesus and Luke are using this similar phrase in Acts chapter 1, 5. See, I don't think Jesus means that his disciples are going to be converted here in Acts 1, 5 from unbelief to belief. In this baptism that he tells them to, hey, you need to wait. I know you're roaring, to go. I know you're roaring ready to go. I want you to wait. Wait in Jerusalem. See, I think Luke sees the apostles as genuine born-again believers before the promise of the baptism. In fact, Luke ends his gospel. Think about this. He ends his gospel, which he wrote before this event. And here's his description of the apostles in Luke 24, 52 to 53. We'll throw it up on the screen. It says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple blessing God. So here's a group of men. They're worshiping Jesus. They have great joy. They're blessing God through Jesus in the temple. They don't strike me as unregenerate pagans. They don't. Like waiting to become Christians. Waiting to be born again by the arrival of the Holy Spirit that he tells them to wait for. And that's why I'm arguing like Mr. Piper does. That Paul's use of the phrase in 1 Corinthians 12 holds a different meaning than the Luke-Jesus phrase here in Acts 1-5. And no doubt at which point you'll say, okay, if I buy that, if that's the case, and, and, and Paul means one thing and, and Luke and Jesus mean another thing, then what in the world does Luke and Jesus mean? What is this other in Acts 1-5, what is that one referring to? And I think when he says that you will be baptized, I want you guys to wait in Jerusalem. I think when he tells them to wait to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, what he means is that you're going to receive extraordinary power for God-ordained Christ-exalting ministry. You should write that down. Uh, that's what I think he means. If 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's usage is referring to conversion then what is Jesus and Luke referring to? That they're going to receive extraordinary power for God-ordained, Christ-exalting ministry. That's what I think he means. And that experience may come in unusual ways that are decisive after conversion. A day, a week, a year, a minute. There is seemingly no set pattern, and it may be followed by subsequent or additional outpourings or fillings. Really? Yeah, because that's the language of Acts. That these baptisms of the Spirit, these additional fillings of the Spirit, may happen periodically throughout life. And, and I, I think it would be a mistake to, to limit baptism in, by, or with the Holy Spirit to a single second event. Like, okay, apostles are saved, and... Now they wait in Jerusalem, and now they get it. Okay, we're done. We're good to go now. 
because these moments are not consistently the same in every single season of the Christian life. And, and so I, I, think, I think it is right to ask for new baptisms or, or new fillings, because that's the language of the Puritans. That's the language of Martin Lloyd-Jones. That's the language of, of John Piper. I've heard him say this, like when I come to the pulpit and I pray, oh God, like I need a fresh baptism. I need a fresh anointing. I need a fresh filling. I need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I get it, like that might sound kind of strange to pray or talk that way. Some of you grew up with me like very, very Baptist. And so the things I'm saying are like, I don't know yet. Keep talking though. And it might seem kind of strange to talk that way. But if you're like me, then you need to understand this, that this is also the language of the book of Acts. Because these kind of things, they, which are not, oh, by the way, continuous. Like, they're waiting, they get baptized, now they're good. It seems to happen multiple times. Like, example, in Acts 13, Paul is on Cyprus. He's about to speak. And it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, a good Baptist like myself, you say, oh, well, that's conversion. And then I say, so he hasn't been a Christian the whole time? Just happens when he's in Acts 13? That's when he becomes a Christian? Like, okay, like what do we do with the text? And I'd say, well, no. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then, oh, by the way, he happens to have extraordinary power to deal with the magician there on the island. Like, that's, that's the kind of thing I think Jesus is getting at. Like, I want you to know... I want you to know this experience as you guys get ready to head out and evangelize the world and tell people about Jesus and the hope that we have in Christ. And, and in those moments, it would be like crazy scary. You don't have to be scared because like, you're not going on your own strength. Come on. That's, right. That's the point, right? Yeah. You're not going on your own strength. And I don't want to get too far ahead, but if we just, you know, just kind of peek a little bit into next week. Look at Acts 1.8. When we, when we think, about, uh, what, what is this, this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Can you give me some more biblical evidence? Sure, I'd love to. Verse 8, it says, but you will receive power, right? You guys are going to be waiting. The Holy Spirit is going to baptize you. And then you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the end of the earth. Even Lynchburg, Virginia. That's what he's saying. You're going to receive power. That's the immediate description of, of what's going to happen, guys, if you wait for the baptism. And so it's this empowering for the global Christ-exalting effectiveness. So what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, it depends on who's using it. Are we talking about 1 Corinthians 12, how Paul's using it? Or are we thinking about Acts chapter 1-5 when he's quoting Jesus? Because if it's the Acts 1-5, it's you're going to receive extraordinary power for God-ordained, Christ-exalting ministries. That's my understanding of the baptism of, with, the Holy Spirit. Paul uses this form of the phrase to refer to what happens at the new birth. Luke uses it when describing this empowerment by the Spirit. And, and now to answer the questions, because there's no doubt questions that come up, so I'm, I tried to anticipate them for today's sermon. What about all that peculiar stuff? What about all the miraculous stuff, right? This is usually the speaking in tongues, prophetic word. That's what you want to know, I imagine. So I have written that into my text here. Um, do such baptism of the Holy Spirit include this? It may or it may not. 
Um, if we're going to really do honor to the text, you can't say that it always does. Sometimes, sometimes not. Like the bottom line in the book of Acts is there is no set pattern that we see. And, and furthermore, to say, okay, well, you've got to be baptized in the Holy Spirit as if you can make it happen or create it for an individual isn't what's happening here. Because I know that maybe there are some denominations, that's why I say I'm a charismatic with a seatbelt, right? Because there are some denominations that be like, hey, do you want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Um, and I used to be like, I already have when I became a Christian. Well, yeah, it's the Paul usage in 1 Corinthians 12, but what about, what about this empowering? I'd be like, all right, sure, if you want to pray for me, but don't think just because I don't manifest certain peculiar signs that doesn't mean it has or hasn't it's like stuck. And I think that's, we need the clarification there because it gets kind of confusing. And the tendency is in those denominations, we get like kind of freaked out, so we just run away. Don't want to run away. We've got to deal with the text. And the text obviously brings this issue up. They're told to wait. And as Christians, I think we ought to wait and we ought to pray for such fillings. I realize that may seem strange, but I don't think it's a bad thing. Just as Piper says, when I stand up every week and I, and I preach, I pray for that, right? Because no amount of preparation, no amount of me knowing my Bible, coming up here ready to preach for you, is going to make a lick of difference if God's not working on our hearts. It won't make any difference whatsoever. Like, you could have a non-Christian friend of yours sit with, like, some of the greatest panel of theologians. They're talking to them, and all their words are just bouncing off, right, if the Spirit's not in it. And that's what I mean, right? It's those moments where you're having those conversations with friends, right? And you've, you just are, it just seems like, you're like, wow. It's like one of those wow moments, or one of those God moments, to borrow the cliche, right? Like, how does that happen? Jesus, God. Like, would that be an example? It could be. It could be. I could, I'm not going to rule it out. You know, that's one of the reasons I, I've told some of you before. When I come up here and I preach and I pray, God, protect me from error. But also, Lord, give me a word. Like, if there's something that I need to say and I have had no plan to say that, then give it to me. Right? H- how would that happen? I, I think uh, maybe a fresh filling of the Spirit. Um, I don't think it's wrong to pray for such things at all. And that's the whole point, because when we understand, like, God's power and not our own power, then I think we understand the point of why Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem. You need to wait. You need to wait for this fresh filling for this baptism of the Holy Spirit to receive this extraordinary power for God-ordained, Christ-exalting ministries. And it may come now, and it may come a year from now in your life when you need it more than ever, when you're in a really like difficult or complicated situation. It may come in that moment. Probably will. But more than that, we need to understand the purpose of the power. The purpose of the power is to do the work that God's called us to do. What has he called us to do? He's called us to go make disciples. And and we need to be teaching people, right? That was a big emphasis on verse 1. We need to be doing what Jesus did and and, and telling what Jesus taught and told. We need to be doing those things. And if we're not doing those things, that's a problem. 
that you're disobeying Jesus. If you're not, all the Bible knowledge is great, but if you don't act like a Christian, that's a problem. You're a joke. Hebrews would say that, Hebrews 5.12. And you could go to the far extreme and say, well, brother, I'm more on the charismatic side. I'm all about waiting for this power, praying for the, the, a fresh right, anointing or, or filling of the Holy Spirit. I'm all for that. I just wait for God's power. And, and then it's like an excuse for spiritual apathy that I don't need to do the preparation. I don't need to know what God's word says because I just wait uh-uh, for God. Right? You can overemphasize it to such a degree that, okay, no, that's unbiblical and sinful. So this is what this is about. It's about being like Jesus in word and deed to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to anyone that God puts in our path, sharing the gospel, telling them about Jesus, inviting them to come be fishers of men and join us on this God-given mission to go make disciples. That's what this is all about. It's scary, Joe. You don't have to be scared, right? Because it's not about your own strength or your own power to accomplish the task. That's the point of the text. So as the team comes, I want to pray for us today, guys. Lord, we, we love you. And we thank you that you are all the things that we are not. That you, you, you pick up when our deficiencies let us down. In those moments when we're maybe talking to a roommate or a friend or a family member and, and we're scared like out of our boots to open our mouth and invite them to church or to share the gospel and, and we just pray like, God, I need right now, like, I need your power right now. Like, whatever words we use, we know that we need your power, we need your strength because that's what this is about, Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would give us those moments and that we would remember this story in those moments when, when we are truly fearful and yet trying to live faithfully and obediently to you, God. <sighs> you are big. We are small. Um, you are great, and, and we are not. And we love you, and we, we praise you. Thank you for your word. Lord, may we be not just hearers of the word, may we also be doers. Convict us and show us, Lord, our deficiencies and shortcomings. And, and Lord, grow us in our faith and our obedience. Well, we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.